Welcome to Lit Up. We haven't had any new episodes go up since the coronavirus has ravaged the world. A lot of these conversations that you'll hear of the next four episodes were recorded before this time. Um, so I just want to give some in, an introduction that gives them a little context. I'm hoping that the levity of uh, the content will be a nice escape for us all, um, but there will be new podcasts coming up soon. It's my real pleasure to share with you this episode with Christopher Bolan, who is a great friend of mine and has been on the podcast before, where we talked about his uh, second novel, The Destroyers, and that was set on the island of Patmos. But his latest novel, another thriller called A Beautiful Crime, is set in Venice, Italy. And I'm hoping that as we all think of everyone in Italy struggling right now in isolation and as we head into a similar type of quarantine situation you know just thinking about them and um, hoping that the the joy that we find um, in this story will um, you know just touch your hearts a little bit. A Beautiful Crime is a tantalising thriller about Nicholas Brink, who at age 25 has never been to Venice, let alone left the United States. He's from Dayton, Ohio, and is always trying to kind of leave that other self behind. I'm going to leave it there and hope you enjoy the episode. We'll, it'll, a lot will be revealed in there. Again, um, thanks for listening. I hope everyone's doing well. We'll have lots more to share with you over the next few months and we'll all stick together. I'm so pleased Christopher Bolin is back on Lit Up. How many years ago was it since we spoke? Must have been two and a half years ago. You're fast then if this is the next book already. I got lucky for this one because I, was, I had a residency in Paris and when you don't speak the language. You have all this buildup of English that you just end up pouring into a book in your room. So I did write this strangely quickly. That's a great tip for other writers, isn't it? Just go somewhere foreign where you have no friends. Exactly. I did have one friend. So I did have someone to have dinner with, which was, uh, which was comforting. But um, it, I had never done a residency before and I really didn't think that I would ever write well on one. But going to another country is a wonderful way to force yourself to sort of move forward with a book because it's a little bit lonely in that great way that you can just sort of make a friend with your work. Okay, before let's back up a little bit. So we're here to talk about your fourth novel, A Beautiful Crime. Now, when you were on the show last time, we talked about The Destroyers and that was set on the island of Patmos. Right. And I feel like you're tricky and cunning and clever because you set your books in these incredible places where you'd love to visit again. And this one's in Venice. And I'd love you to read the prologue so we can get a sense of, A, the, the kind of thriller that this sets up, but it does give us a tiny sense of the Venice in the book. Great. Okay. This is the prologue. Down below the cry of gulls, below floors of tourists undressing and dressing for dinner, below even the shrinking figure of his killer, a man lies crumpled and bleeding. He's been dead for only a few seconds. He's sprawled on his stomach, 
his body twisted at the hips, his left arm hooked in a U above his head. He lies on a square of gray steel, and from a distance, high above, he looks almost like a man stuck in a photograph, trying to crawl out of a frame. It's his head, the eerie contorted tilt of it, and the blood leaking through his pink shirt that gives the crime away. Outside, the sun is setting on what is unarguably the most beautiful city on the planet. There are a lot of dead bodies in this town. Upstairs in the man's room, an English guidebook recommends taking a boat out to San Michele to visit an entire island of them. Among the legions buried there are the composer Igor Stravinsky, the ballet director Sergei Degliev, and the poet Ezra Pound. This city is sinking and had been for centuries. Enjoy it while you can. The blood is pooling around the body. Screams are blaring from every direction. The killer is making a run for the exit. But none of this has happened yet. Oh, thank you. It's, of course, the last thing I wrote for the whole book. So Is it? Yeah, that was the, I, I'm such a chronological writer. I mean, I, I, my brain doesn't work otherwise unless I think in... I think also for writing sort of semi-thrillers, you have to follow the buildup of the plot. But that was the, just, I went back at the end and, and wrote that. So that was the last, the first is the last. Huh. Well, I wasn't going to start here, but since you're talking about thrillers and the structure of them, you do so much other writing. You write for Interview Vanity Fair all over. Um, what is it about the thriller form that you love in a novel? Well, it, allows me to I just find that I'm such a rambler as a writer and so and I can really kind of sometimes you can start with a character and then you can do a flashback and you can keep going backward instead of moving forward you know you can keep telling stories backward about their whole life and suddenly you think oh my gosh I'm on page 100 and the person's still standing in the same place we just introduced to him or her so for me the thriller just allows me to always say like, you've got to move this forward. You've got to go, you've got to go faster. And so I love the narrative buildup of a thriller. It just allows me to pace a book because if, if you were left with me in a room to just write, I would just write in circles and these characters would never end up like getting out of the plane and meeting each other. And so, and you know, I just love that. I think this is a sort of a bigger answer is that I think that in 20th century uh, literary fiction, I mean, there was a, a, there's a, a lack of seriousness projected on thrillers that they're just popular entertainment. They don't amount to anything. I think that's absolutely incorrect. Um, and what I like about a thriller and what I love about crime and what I love about introducing that element is that it, kind of cuts through all of the class and racial and sex barriers that we have. And it brings everyone into this sort of chaotic moment. And when chaos reigns for even an hour, a few days in a book, all these wonderful things can happen with characters. They can unravel, they can come into blows with each other, they can see each other for what they really are. So it's just, it's a wonderful way to sort of break up the usual segmented lives we all live. And, and so for me, that's what's really exciting about it. And I hope, I wish people would take it more seriously. Well, I think they will now. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> so we, our protagonist is Nick Brink and he comes to Venice for the first time as a 25-year-old. He's from Dayton, Ohio. And I'm wondering when you first 
experienced Venice and the effect it had on you? Right. Well, it's funny that you bring up Patmos is because after I finished writing um, The Destroyers, I really wanted to stay away from America again. I mean, I just wanted to write another book in, an, in a foreign destination. And at that point, I didn't have my um, Paris residency and I didn't think that I could go somewhere and learn about a new place. And so I just picked a city that I always loved, a city that I knew pretty well. Um, and it was Venice because the first time I went, I was a teenager with my parents and we stayed for like, it was a very like tourist uh, introduction and I stayed for three days. But on that trip, we went to the Peggy Guggenheim Museum. And I remember there were these older people, I mean, they were probably 21 at that point, who were running around sort of selling tickets and organizing tours. And I thought, oh my God, I want that job. And so when I graduated from college, I applied for this internship at the Peggy Guggenheim and I got it. And so my first real arrival was I was 23, it was 1999. I flew, I scrounged all the money I had to buy a plane ticket. And I went and uh, lived in Venice for four months in uh, summer of, yeah, 99 and worked at the Peggy Guggenheim as an intern. It was a paid internship. I mean, it was paid like in lira and it was paid in, you know, very little. You scraped by, but you can scrape by in Venice and live like a prince because of the city is just so beautiful. So I completely fell in love with it living there. Wow, so your experience is really poured into Clay, another character we meet who does or did have an internship at the Guggenheim right. Museum and that experience shapes him yes. as well. Yes, absolutely. This is maybe my, I mean, I have not murdered anyone, but this is a very much more um, autobiographically uh this book is is based a lot on on, on, on experiences I had as a young person, um, and, and definitely with Venice. I you know the hard thing is is Venice is such a tourist city now. It's really hard. It was really hard to think of a reason why someone who was very young would go and live there if not to work in the tourist industry. And the only thing, I mean, I could have kind of conjured up some, some phony excuse, but I, and the internship there is a reason that brings a lot of people um, working at the museum. So it just seemed like a natural way to explain why Clay would have been there. You know, it's an expensive city. He, he's not from money. He's from the Bronx. Like how else would he go if not like sort of as a student or post-student life? Well, there's a part in the, just a paragraph I love, and this is actually from Nick's perspective, um, and he's just arrived in Venice, but I think it brings up another theme I want to talk about, which I'll, I'll let the, what you read reveal itself. Okay. Yeah, this is in the uh, first chapter when uh, Nick just arrives by uh, plane from New York to Venice, and uh, he's just left the airport. Usually he'd wear jeans or sweats for such a long flight, but he wanted to enter Venice dressed like he belonged. He wore a pink button-down shirt underneath a billiard green blazer that was already proving too hot for April in Italy. His twill pants were ocean blue, and they felt heavy on his legs, as if he were indeed climbing out of an ocean in pants. The shoes were his, black alligator loafers that he'd saved up for months to buy and therefore rarely wore. Closet dust was still embedded between the scales. Oh. I have shoes like that. That's where it came directly. That's an autobiographical detail. 
Um, that just reminded me of when I would imagine myself living in New York and almost constructing the outfits right. that I would wear when I was walking down Fifth Avenue. And I remember buying a pair of shoes <laughs> in Sydney for that. Right. You know, I thought I will wear these and they were so uncomfortable and wouldn't have worked at all. And I had to wait so long that I don't think I they ever got to be here. But it's it's sad because I think too because if you're not from vast sums of wealth and you're sort of a newcomer in a place and you you have all these dreams of of rising or how you see yourself or want to see yourself when you start over, you you sort of save up and you buy this expensive piece and then you never really wear it because you're because just it's waiting wrong right well. it doesn't it's not right for you and you're waiting for the moment that you're supposed to wear it um but also they kind of represent your idea of that place whereas you yeah. get there and like your new yorker friend would be like why are you wearing that <laughs> totally you know and you know anyone who actually has been to Venice before knows that it's like the most punishing town for walking in and these shoes for poor nick are not going to be worn for long because they're going to kill him. You know, it hurts so bad to to wear that kind of footwear on all the bridges and cobblestones. But it mean, and of course, because those shoes are his. Unlike the clothes, he's borrowed a lot of the clothes from other people. Like he never has worn them. You know, because he actually had to earn that money uh, for the shoes. So they're too precious to actually be worn. We've just heard how Nick arrives in Venice and kind of what he's wearing and the kind of the headspace he's in to try and fit in. But I'd love to go back because you do then flash back to his life in New York. Mm. And there's a whole before Venice that, of course, informs this part. And it's a relationship he has with an older man called mm. Ari. Mm-hmm. And I was... I'd love you to talk about the dynamics of, you know, age and class, but also what it's like to come to New York and other cities with very little money or connections. And you can live in a house with all these roommates and then, you know, an older, more sophisticated person is almost your way out. That's right. Um, That, you know, and I think it's doubly true or used to be doubly true for gay men um, because... I mean, now it's very different. Um, And in a way, this seemed to me a sort of love song goodbye to 20th century homosexuality in a lot of of ways, this book, just because of the relationships and the art forms and everything else about it and the criminality, everything else about it. But one thing that used to just regularly happen is that these young men... um, would sort of be kicked out or leave their families in the Midwest or anywhere in America, really. And, you know, because they were gay and they'd come to New York. um, And, you know, it was a place where you could be who you wanted to be to a certain extent. And in a lot of ways, there would be this relationship one would foster with like an older gay man, whether it was, you know, platonic or sexual, where where you would sort of rely on that person to help you and foster you. And and part of that was an education and it was an education in art forms and it was an education in uh, often like decorative arts or opera. I mean, this is a very stereotypic gay, gay art forms, but not without reason because they were kept alive in a lot of ways by, you know, older men who were passionate about them and they, and you would learn about it. Um, But also, you know, it, it, for me, it's also a story of like survival. Um, and Nick doesn't have anything. And he's 
questionably, is he smart? Yes, he's clever, but he's not, you know, a brain. And so he has his youth and he has like good looks and he has a, a sort of sweetness and he meets this guy, Ari, who's actually, you know, in his mid forties and is a silver expert, an antique silver expert. And so he's sort of like, because he's the boyfriend of Ari, he suddenly foisted into this world where, you know, it's a very nice apartment. He has a very nice lifestyle. He's working at the, the antique silver shop with Ari. Um, and that's, you know, saving him. And he's sort of in love with Ari. Ari's a, a good guy, but, you know, he he doesn't really have a lot of options. He was a waiter before that. Um, and so he's sort of trying to survive in New York, which is, you know, such an expensive city. And, and, and you know, it's not unheard of that people take these relationships because it's a way out or a way in, really, more than a way out. Well, there was a moment that, I recognise too when um, Ari is so passionate about silver and where it comes from and the very specific dates. And you can see Nick thinking maybe silver will be my passion too. And hoping that some of Ari's enthusiasm will rub off on him. Exactly. And like, don't we wish that so often? Always. Like, wouldn't this be so wonderful if I loved antique silver and we could <laughs> be this team? I'm so envious of people who actually have an expertise in something. I think as like a writer or as an editor in a, a you know of a, of a culture magazine, you often feel as if you lack a sort of expertise because language you're an expert an expert in, but that's a slippery a slippery subject matter. I, I'm like so jealous of people who have found their calling in like 14th century enamel paint German enamel paintings, and it's like, oh my god, you could become an expert of that. And so it's you know it takes a lot of work and education, but it's something you could master. And so I think it's just always so amazing when someone has mastered a field. And it's certainly something that I don't have. Yes, you, you're a novelist. Well, that's the nice thing about being a novelist is you can dip in and out. You know, I can, I can learn a lot about antique silver for this book and, and, sort of, and sort of get a secondary high from, you know, the understanding of people who do have a sort of extreme passion for it. But, um, I mean, to be quite honest, before I was researching early colonial American silver for this book, I couldn't have told you the difference between real and plate in a lot of ways, you know? So I'm, I'm a bit Nick on that, on that front, like, you know, just sort of learning as I go and sort of making it up as I go along. Um, but of course what happens is, is Nick, so the part of the, the thriller or the, the con that these two young men are doing is they're going to, to, to try to sell some, some fake, some counterfeit silver to an unsuspecting older American in Venice using this Nick as this idea that he has some mastery that he doesn't have. You've talked about Nick's relationship with Ari and that dynamic there. And now Clay has his own relationship with an older man, Freddie. And really the death of Freddie, which I'd love you to talk about this funeral scene that is kind of at once poignant and funny. (laughs) Um, But how is their dynamic different to Clay and Ari's? Well, yeah, it it, it is very different. It's a platonic love and maybe a a much deeper one in a lot of ways. Um, Freddie is uh, 
sort of a true bohemian of the 20th century. He's from a very wealthy uh, Dutch colonial family, you know, once very wealthy. And the name still sounds wealthy, but of course they've run out of money a long time ago. And um, Freddie's like, Freddie was based on a, a lot of ways, except for the, the, the famous Dutch family on this photographer named David Armstrong, who was part of the Boston School of Photographers and was friends with Nan Golden and Jack Pearson and was a really amazing uh, photographer and an amazing character. I mean, just a, a wild, eccentric bohemian to the very end. And so I loved, like, I loved David so much and I loved the way he spoke and I loved just how just completely unconventional he was in all moments and totally inappropriate. And so I uh, wanted to just try to bottle some of that in this character of Freddie. And Freddie and uh, Clay meet uh, during Clay's internship in Venice because Freddie owns a little sort of a slice of a palazzo in Venice and that's how they end up meeting. And, and Freddie kind of takes clay under his wing too, in a very similar way. Um, theirs is not sexual, you know, it's not boyfriends, but in its way, it's much more personal. Um, and they sort of save each other and they're sort of keeping each other alive in a lot of ways. And they come back to New York together and, and then clay sees Freddie to his, his death, you know, until the end. And so what we, and so where clay and, and Nick meet is at this memorial service for Freddie where, you know, like you know, the, the memorial service is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Nick doesn't know Freddie. And so it's also this like completely time-wasting extravagance for someone he's never met where a bunch of people get up and like, you know, spend an hour rehearsing, you know, telling memories of, of the, you know, a better era in New York. And it's, it can be very painful if you don't actually have any connection to it at all. So it was just a funny way to sort of talk about um, how one person's life and, and great adventure to an out young person can just seem like so totally boring. One of the parts that I really connected to and loved, I'm going to go back to the relationship between Nick and Ari and it's these tiny moments, tiny things like the fact that Ari buys um, Nick a green sweater and those dynamics of power in a relationship where as the younger kind of less sophisticated person you are given things that you are also expected to wear and expected to, that will help you fit into this other kind of social circle. Right. And I'm just like when a character grows out of that, I think that's really interesting. Did you think about Ari being left behind much? Totally, absolutely. And I kept thinking, I wish I could date Ari, but not in that situation because there isn't, you're exactly right, there is an unfair power dynamic going on there where Ari is in complete control and he's the mentor and he's also the gift giver. He has the money and he has the education and all the connections and Nick has nothing. And so he's just, and we've all seen this. We've many of you who are listening will have experienced this. Like we've all been in relationships where someone holds all the keys 
and you're supposed to, and it's sort of unspoken that you're supposed to be the number two. You're supposed to toe the line and be what they want you to be. And you, in return, you get these, you know, great uh, benefits. And, you know, I think that they, there was a love, you know, there is a love to it too. So it isn't just completely transactional. I mean, I think that Nick needed Ari, you know, to find his way in the world, but there comes a point where Nick needs to try to be Nick or figure out who Nick is. And that's when he falls in love with Clay um, because they're the same age in a lot of ways. And they're figuring out how to make a, 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 a complete self in a very difficult world and not just be under someone else's thumb. So um, I felt for Ari. I mean, Nick has to break up with Ari to go with Clay and Nick ends up sort of betraying Ari because he's pretending to be a silver expert under Ari, the auspice of Ari's uh, name. You know, that's part of the con. But, you know, it was really interesting to think about that in, in a lot of ways and to think about how, what it's like to kind of exist as someone else's idea of you, you know? And so that was, an, it, was a, it was really fun to write that because I ha- don't see that explored very often. I mean, you don't find a lot of descriptions of that feeling and you think of you know it's people either in love or they're not in love but there's a lot of sacrifices to one's you know self and identity that go into these relationships especially when it's between different generations and and clearly different uh different economic and conditions and, and Ari has the support of his family he has New York he's you know he has everything he holds all the cards and so Nick yeah. is just sort of left to, to be what Ari wants him to be. I always think it's interesting when people outgrow a relationship. I mean, what that even is a cliche phrase, but what that feels like to know you have to move on even though this person has helped shape who you are. Right. And the it's frame so doesn't fit you anymore. Yeah. It's terrifying because it's so much easier not to. It's just so much easier to stay in that drift and and to just be what someone else wants you to be. And I mean, why make the sacrifice? Why ruin a good thing that you've got going? Um, the reason he does it is because he's 25 and there's a whole world out there and he doesn't have a passion for silver. <laughs> he doesn't want to end up owning Ari's family's colonial silver shop. He wants to live, you know, his own life. And so, and Clay's that opportunity. Um, I mean, Clay is burdened too with debt because he was trying to save um, Freddie uh, in, in his end. So they sort of are like, they've sort of had to tear themselves away from these older keepers and and try to make their own way in the world. It's a very criminal way they've decided to do it. I mean, they're, they're not con artists. They're sort of hopelessly bad at it in a lot of ways, but they're just trying to get some money as fast as possible to sort of set their own lives up. Well, that's an interesting thing too, to decide to have these characters that we end up loving be criminal minds, essentially. Yeah. I mean, even though they aren't doing it so well, but I think it's also... Their age allows us to give them grace yeah. a bit. How did you, in the writing, it's such a delicate balance 
Oh my gosh. And it's hard to, and sometimes you shouldn't like them because I mean, what they are doing is, is totally fraudulent. And there's a lot of, especially I think with Nick, because he's, he claims innocence so much, but he's actually the sort of plan that he's the one who's sort of egging on all of the criminal activity. But there were two things that I really wanted to do with this book. I feel like so much gay fiction in the past 10 years has been about how sad it is to be gay and like the victimization of youth and how, you know, these, these very tortured coming out stories. And that is so true. And that is the, the, the fate and the, the, the legacy we have to deal with of so many gay narratives, but that's taking so much agency away from gay people and so much complexity. It's also so fun to be gay. It's also, there's so there's a great side to it. There's a much more complicated side to it. So I didn't want to have these two characters who are just victims or angels who are misunderstood. I mean, you can be bad. You can be a little wicked. You can get into trouble of your own doing by giving a more complicated, complex, not always positive character to a gay man is to is to give a credit to them is to respect them. So I wanted that. I wanted to have them be not, you know, such wonderful beings that are just completely misunderstood as if there's some sort of mythological unicorn or something. But also I was also thinking a lot about Ripley, who was ostensibly straight, um, the talented Mr. Ripley. Um, it's so easy to write a sociopath, which is what uh, Tom Ripley is. He's a complete sociopath. He has no empathy or feelings for anyone else in the world. And it's fun. It's an archetype. It's a deliciously enjoyable character. But it's it's so much harder to write someone who does criminal behavior who's a good person or a relatable person or someone who does feel guilty about it or tries to come to some sort of moral resolution or ethical resolution. So as much as I love Ripley, I didn't want to write about a, a lunatic, you know, who is just masquerading in nice clothes as a, a, a good-looking person. I mean, that's a very also like American Psycho. These are just archetypes of people. They're more like they're more like Greek characters. I wanted to write just about a realist, real characters who are who are good but capable of doing bad. And it's more fun to read that, I think, and wrestle with the. I prefer that because I can imagine being in either of these men's positions. And in some ways, when you go back into their past, I recognize, you know, I recognize myself in both of them in certain points of my life. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a complicated reading that you don't really know where you're standing with them because you might think like, oh, I really like them. And I also like... I really can't stand them in this moment. And that's exactly what people are like. I think it's, you know, it's very different to just have, I think Ripley or Bateman become sort of cartoons. They just become these elements. And this is why they're so easily become like sort of foils of American identity. They're not real. They're not real people. So they can take on all this representation as being sort of the ultimate American antagonists or, you know, but they're not, I mean, you don't really connect with Ripley because there's no human there. Reading your book also reminded me of Less mm. by Andrew Sean Greer because yeah. 
of the playfulness in the writing. Um, and I thought it reminds me of the dancing scene mm. in the book where they're in the palazzo and it's just this wonderful moment of kind of that multi-generational dancing to Italian was it so, jazz and it's soul? It's like Itali- 70s disco, Italian disco. But they have that in so much in Italy. And what is so beautiful about Italy in a ways is they don't have the same sort of generational uh, obstacles that we do. Like I feel, I feel like you, you can go to a party and like an old man will be dancing with the like young people. It's just such a different, I guess you could call it La Dolce Vita, but it's just such a different relationship between generations. And at least in that format of like a family party or a, close friends party and I just loved that like, you don't do that in America like, I mean at weddings I suppose you do that but um do you feel I would I mean this is maybe my tell me if my I'm stereotyping but I feel that in the gay community it feels like far more multi-generational absolutely than in the straight kind of hetero community where it seems very delineated that's absolutely true I think and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, in the sort of heterosexual life, you already have your generations, you have your families. And so you have this structure sort of b- baked into your life from birth. Like those are your grandparents, those are your parents. And here we are, and here are my siblings. But like, I think when you kind of, you have to build a second family from scratch in a new city. And so you have all these intergenerational relationships and suddenly you're sort of finding fathers and 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 grandmothers and aunts and uncles out of you know you're cobbling that family together out of sort of very different uh people all over and so yeah i think there is a a real interplay there that's very different and really refreshing more more communal in a lot of ways and also that search for i mean mentors is the wrong word but learning from other generations in terms of the arts and Mm -hmm. like i found coming to new york as a straight woman i've my friendships are far more intergenerational than they were at home in Australia. So it's part that the city does that to you because you need friends where you can find them. Right. And you can really kind of burrow into your interests and whether someone's 60 or 21, you can have that connection. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that is one of the gifts of New York and I hope it never goes away is that, I mean, there is such a rigid class system to New York and there is a a terrible inequality. But the one thing that I love about New York is that you never, you're rarely invited to someone's apartment. You rarely know where they live. Even if you know the neighborhood, you don't know what their apartment looks like. You don't really, it's not like suburban homes where you know exactly how rich someone is by the street they live on. I mean, yes, there's people who live on Park Avenue and you try to guess, but like, it's sort of a democratic way of being is like you, uh, people can live uptown and they can be rich and poor, but you're still seeing them all the time in the same way. And so I love that ass. And there's no cars, so you can't tell like by the, by what car they get into, how much money they have. So it's like sort of all up in the air and there's a, a flexibility to that. And I think it like, it allows people to intermix more, um, than it is in other more striated uh, cities. I've thought about this a lot because the subway is such a democratic way to get around. And if you are a real New Yorker, you get the subway no matter what strata 
you're in, in, but it also means that you have to dress down essentially. Yeah, that's true. And it's very kind of leveling. It's always so weird to wear it to be, I mean, I often do it because I take the subway constantly, is to like when you're going somewhere fancy and you're all dressed up and you get on the subway and you always like such an idiot in a way. <laughs> but I actually am really into taking the bus lately. It's my new way to get it. I love the bus. Oh, um, I want to do that because I'd much rather be above ground. It's and so see nice. Everything. And it's, it's sort of like, it's sort of a chic New York moment uh, to be like crossing uh, Central Park and the, the cross count bus. So it's, it's it really enjoy and totally different crowd than the subway. People are a little bit nicer, um, except don't do it at 3 p.m. because that's when the schools let out. So then it just becomes a real crush. But, um, it's like a much more, I don't know, it's, it has a nice atmosphere to it, the bus. I'm going to take that on. Take yeah. us back to Venice because it is this magical place. And I remember the first time I went, actually the only time I went was with my family as well. Oh. But I was, it was when I was an exchange student in the US and I had for the first six months eaten a lot of chocolate chip cookies and one of the girls I lived with also worked at the ice cream shop. So I had put on like quite <laughs> a bit of weight and I had had a terrible dye job with my hair and then I had dyed it black. So I had turned up to Welcome see... Welcome to America, really. Yeah, well, I turned up to see my family and I think I was, we were waiting in Rome on the Spanish steps, like the, I was going to be reunited with them. Right. And I remember standing there probably like in bulging out of my dress, you know, hot and sweaty with this black hair. And my dad looked straight past me. Like they did <laughs> not recognise me. And I was mortified and I'm thinking, oh, it's because of the hair and, you know, this. Anyway, he was so shocked, I think, by not recognising me that when we got to Venice, the first thing we did was he paid <gasps> to have my hair put back, oh you know, blonded again. Right or just kind of normalised because like it, it had been like a very strange, like black red, you know, when yeah, things have yeah. all gone wrong. And so my one of my strongest memories is sitting in a hairdresser in Venice with an Irish hairdresser. Oh, who getting, could at least speak English though, so exactly, that at least you could say what you wanted. stripping it all. But then the other memory is the Peggy Kugenheim oh, really? Museum and oh, funny. turning up in the boat when yeah. you enter that way and how small it is and how those iconic paintings are so delicate. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And the blues. I mean, I can see why you wanted to go back there so much. What was that summer like? That summer, I have an inverse story to yours. It's very <gasps> weird. Is I hair had dye? I, yes, I had <laughs> dyed black hair. I went to Columbia for college. I was living in New York. I was like, uh, I had dyed black hair. I looked like a mod, but it was very misanthropic and like very like, you know, um, New York neurotic and sort of mopey and angry about nothing and everything. And when I went to, I swear it was like overnight. I went to Venice. I remember so well arriving. I had to find a pen, little pensione on my own with, that was cheap. Um, and I changed instantly the next day. I mean, I became, the sunlight was so beautiful. The city was so beautiful. I suddenly just embraced happiness. I swear to God, I swear if I hadn't done that internship, I would be teaching 
you know, if I would be a philosophy professor somewhere, because I would have gone to grad school and 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 continued on my academic anger life. But I instead just like really became so happy and loved life. I mean, it was very La Dolce Vita. And I grew out the black dye in my hair. And my parents were in Europe that summer, like on a, a they did a vacations and they were, it, make, it makes them sound so much wealthier than they were. But they came down to Venice to see me um, for like two days. And they couldn't get over how much I had changed from the person they knew before. I was like, my hair had like lightened into brown I had sun on my face, Damn. I was smiling, I was like speaking a little Italian, you know, I mean, it was a very, it was a, a real transformation. So we were, we have very different stories of that, but um, it was wonderful. And, you know, I think when you think of Venice artwork, you think of the Veronese's and you think of uh, the Tintoretto's and those are so Wonderful. The very special thing about the Peggy Guggenheim is it's this extraordinary little jewel of modern art intermixed with all of that sort of Renaissance and Rococo. And and it was most of the internship was really guard duty. I mean, I spent most of my hours just standing in a, in a room. Um, and that was, for me, even incredible because you would just be staring at these Picassos and Picabias for hour after hour and you learn every little piece about them, you know? And so um, it was just such a beautiful thing to do. It was such a beautiful thing for life and, and for loving art. Um, so, and there was like guard duty and there was a coat check and then I would sell the tickets in the front and we would give a tour once a week. Um, but I used so many of the locations beyond the museum in this book. Like there's a woman named Daniela who takes care of clay a little bit. Like she's an older, another intergenerational friend. Um, and she lives in my, my apartment that I had there. I mean, I used my apartment as her, her apartment in the book. It was a, a little, uh, first floor off of, uh, Campo Santa Margarita, which is like this very lively student square and uh, has like a little cement garden and kind of dark and dank, but really charming in its way. And so, yeah, I mean, so many of the locations that I use sort of popped into my mind from, from my time living there. And so it was really fun to go back and explore that. You know, I, I had luckily gone back every two years for the Biennale just because I worked at a culture magazine. So I had never really lost touch with Venice, but um it didn't feel like mine anymore in the same way it did that summer. And so in a weird way, it was like reclaiming Venice a little bit, writing about it. I've always wanted to go to the Biennale. Do regular tourists stay away during that time? Is it a very chic moment? It's too chic. And you know what? It's such a, I loved the Biennale. And in fact, I worked at the Biennale that summer of 1999 because the Peggy Guggenheim has a relationship with the American pavilion. And so um, it's, a huge, wonderful part of Venice, but more and more, it's just so extravagant and so spectacle driven. It feels a little bit more like New York or London to me than Venice. And so, yes, it's like not part of like the mass tourism, but I almost prefer the mass tourism because I think it, it, you know, it's like when I, it's like you don't want to go to when you want to travel and go somewhere amazing, you don't want to end up seeing everyone you know from New York there. And that's what happens with, with the Biennale. It's like 
are you really even in Venice? You're just hanging out with the same people you hang out with in New York. You know, it's so for me, like the best time to go to Venice is in winter. It's a little less it's spookier. It's a little less touristy, touristy. You won't run into anyone, you know, it's not hot. It feels there's a, there's still that authenticity um, and quiet and creepiness that there that is just so magical. And where is your next book set? Oh my gosh, I'm, ha- I'm having a crisis because I can't figure that out. Um, <gasps> it has to be in some fabulous European location. I was thinking not to do Southern Europe a- again. I mean, part of me wants to do Spain or goes further south in Italy, but then I feel like I'm really... Uh, I just feel like I, I've, I've already like written so much now with the last two books about, about that terrain that I almost want to go to like... Cairo or Vietnam or maybe Australia. I mean, well, that's that's well written about by Australians. And so I wouldn't want to take from them. But um, I don't know. I'm I'm dying to find a place. I really am desperate to come up with something good. Well, I can help you. We'll decide. Yeah, let's go on a trip and we'll figure it out as we go. Um, Well, I think, oh my gosh, yeah. Um, what a pleasure it is to speak to you again. Thank you it's so much. It's always so much fun. Yes. Well, I love the show and I'm so happy to be back for it. And I, and I hope that I did Venice. It was, Venice was like the one character I wanted to get right. So oh, I hope I got beautiful. Venice right in the book. You did. And how can we follow you and find out more about your work? Oh, well, I have a website that I barely keep up, but I guess you could, you know, always email me there. It's ChristopherBolin.com. Brilliant. Bye. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Christopher and I talk about a beautiful crime. I think I got so much out of this conversation. It really reminded me of my younger self, of uh, coming to New York and feeling... Uh, Like you could never, how could you ever be a part of this other world and all the strange things you do, like try to wear, you know, strange snakeskin shoes to fit in and they're just totally wrong. It also reminded me how wonderful it is to read, to escape to other places. And I hope uh, this book brings you guys a lot of pleasure. Let us both know how you thought we, we did at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.